Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 285. Today is Sunday the 15th of July, 2018. And this interview is with Esra Doramach, who works at the intersection of politics, international relations, communications and all things digital. Presently the senior editor of digital at Deutsche Welle, Esra has worked as a consultant for the BBC, as a new media analyst for Al Jazeera, all the while having started off her career as a high-level ice hockey player. In this conversation with Esra, we discuss the challenges of transformation in media companies, how to create and distribute powerful content, how to lead change, and how to make training far more effective. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss branding and all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host, and you'll find the show notes on my eponymous site, MinterDial.com. Enjoy the show. So, Esra, Doramaj, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Esra, you and I met at the Global Editors Network. We've been regular frequenters of the Gen, uh, amongst a, a crowd of Fidel Gen supporters. Um, and I was immediately attracted to the, your massively international uh, background. And I think like you may be feeling somehow able to be a citizen of many places or, or globally. Um, and you've had this lovely, very interesting background that starts in sports and ends up at, at uh, Die Welt. So um, tell us in your own words, Esra, how, how, who are you and uh, what, what are you up to? What do you like to talk about? Uh, well, thank you very much for having me. Um, yeah, yes, you're right, except on one point. I'm currently at Deutsche Welle, not oh, Welta. Oh, excuse so, me. Uh, D- uh, another DW, sorry. Another that. DW, that's right. right, but not for too much longer. So this all started back when I was about 16 years old playing ice hockey in Australia. And no, it's not a very common sport in Australia, but I fell into it because I played indoor hockey and field hockey. Uh, and then I had, I guess, one of my first encounters with sexism when my sister and I were told that we couldn't even train with the boys, let alone play with play with them. So we were both at quite good levels then, and there was no other way for us to get better. And so at 16 years of age, I just decided I'm going to go to the best place in the world to play ice hockey, and that was Canada. And, you know, this is before the time of internet, so... I remember I had a Canadian visiting student teacher coach who put me in touch with one person in Vancouver and we were faxing back and forth. Mm-hmm. And I basically lobbied my parents until they said, okay, well, we'll pay for your plane ticket. And uh, looking back on it, I realized how bold it was to do something like that at such a young age. But then it just led on to these other steps, including meeting a roommate who convinced me that I should switch my degree from human performance and sports science to political science if I wanted to change the world, which is something that I've always kind of wanted to do. I went to work for the UN in New York. Again, that kind of, I want to say happened by accident, but also could be characterized as being at the right place at the right time. And then my family background is Turkish, but I'd never lived in Turkey. I met uh, my great uncle who convinced me that I should come to study my master's there and if it didn't work out, I always had the option of going back to the UN, but I ended up staying and it completely changed my world because I'd never lived in a non-Western context up to that point. So not just this whole world of Turkey and my family background, the language and the culture opened up to me, 
but I was a lot more connected to a part of the world that I'd never lived in before. So uh, Russia, Europe, um, Mediterranean, all of these kind of places became immediately accessible to me before. And then um, how I got into journalism, again, I just think it was being at the right place at the right time, meeting somebody from Al Jazeera who thought that I was good enough to do the job, and the rest, as they say, is history. Hmm. Well, you, you, you also worked at YouTube, and uh, you've also done some work at the BBC, is that correct? No, I haven't worked at YouTube. When I was working at the BBC, one of my biggest projects was running YouTube for World Service Languages. So I ran a team that looked after 20 channels, broke all kinds of digital records, uh, and then that project was disbanded. But what gives me a lot of gratification is that every single person on that team since then has gone on to do great things. So one person is a digital editor for India, another one is running video for America's section, another one is a growth editor, another one is now running YouTube for BBC News. And so uh, that, of course, makes me very happy to see that everybody who was on that team has gone on and done so well. Ezra's, Ezra's progeny <laughs> of sorts. So let's just start with the ice hockey. What, what, did you, what did you take away from your experience in doing ice hockey and playing such, at such a high level? So I was very lucky because the place that I ended up in Canada was a national training center. And it was the first year that they put together this full-time women's hockey program. And I was the first international person there. The rest were all Canadians. And our coaches included Shannon Miller, who was Canada's first Olympic women's coach and also head of Team Canada for a long time. And all the other coaches that came through afterwards were also national team coaches. So the people who I was on the ice with daily were all national team members, Olympic team members. I lived with uh, two speed skaters, one of them who went on to become a gold medal uh, winner in, I think it was the Turin Games some years ago. And so what I took away from that, I think, would be two key things. Number one, as an Australian playing ice hockey, you're already on the fringe. But I met a lot of people. I met some South Africans, New Zealanders, and other Australians pursuing winter sports. And so I got there. And also, it was the it was the real location where the actual Jamaican bobsled team trained. Oh, right. So these, these are the real guys. And so by being there, I realized, okay, I'm not the only one. There's all these other crazy people like me. And outside of that geographical context... When you're involved in a sport at such a high level like that and the level of commitment, you give up a lot. So while all of your friends go out drinking and partying on the weekends, you're in bed early because you've got practice the next day. Mm -hmm. So we would be training normally five hours a day, five to six days a week for 11 months of the year. So you, you make a lot of compromises in your life like that, but it's also we, would, we wouldn't rather be doing anything else. The second thing is when you are surrounded by people who want to excel and who are driving you to be your best, I think that that really rubs off on you in all kinds of other ways. And I really do credit my sporting background as the foundation for a lot of the things that I've gone on to do. So one of the pieces of advice that Shannon Miller, the coach I mentioned before, gave me many, many years ago after I had left Canada was... She had said, if you want to be a good leader, you don't need to tell your team what to do. Because if you've recruited them well, they're already good for the job. So in this case, hockey. And she said, all you need to do is give them time and attention. Because if you can keep give them time and attention, 
make sure that they're happy, try to help them with any problems that they're, ha- that they're having, they will go on and perform. And that's exactly the same approach that I took to, especially my YouTube team at the BBC. And uh, just kind of observing other news editorial teams around me, we did things a very, very different way at the BBC. And we had uh, some fans, but we had a lot of people who didn't like what we were doing because it was very, very different. But I think that's one of the reasons why uh, we became such a good team and we were able to achieve such great results because we put the person first rather than the task first and I think if you can invest in people they will turn around and surprise you and show you all kinds of things and I think that's definitely a lesson that I've picked up from sport and then of course there are the other things is um, if you're on a team you perform as a team player but you also need to be able to shine individually and then simple things like being responsible for what you do, being disciplined, being organized. I think all of these things, I, I do in a way credit them to having the sporting background, not just in ice hockey, but I'm from Australia, which is a massive sport country. It's also, you know, sports is very competitive there. And I think in any industry that you work in, you do need to have a little edge of competitiveness. Hmm. Well, I I wanted to go back to that comment you made about sexism because it seems that Australia gets in the press or the, the politics and sexism is, seems to be a regular topic in Australia. I mean, it, 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 how would you characterize that? Is it just sort of more media fake news or, I mean, because it seems to obviously be a topic around the world, uh, but just more recently this year anyway, it seems that it's been a little bit more repeated. Not necessarily. I think that it's always existed. We just hear about these things a lot more because the world is a lot more connected, especially because of the digital platforms that we have and the speed and connectivity with which news is translated. But I think definitely in the last year, starting with these allegations in America and the whole Me Too movement, you do have this light being shed on these issues that you know women have faced. And I think it's it's a good thing. But I think at the time, I, n- I never thought about it in those lenses. I mean, I was 15, 16 years old, and there was really nothing that you could do about it. Ice hockey, anyway, is a very male-dominated sport. Sports in Australia tend to be very male-dominated uh, anyway. But the way that I approach these things now is I really do stick my neck out on the line. And I, and I end up getting in trouble a lot because I do speak up when a lot of people don't or they're afraid of repercussions and um, you know I've gone through some scary things in my life and so on the scale of scariness I think okay well what's the worst thing that could happen worst thing is you know you could be fired okay that's pretty bad but that means that you weren't supposed to be there you're working with people who don't appreciate you understand you or you might get reprimanded or you know so I do think of the risks when I speak up for things like that but I think you know if we're not doing it there's this great quote by American historian Howard Zinn, you can't be neutral on a moving train, which basically means that if you don't speak up, if you don't say anything, you're complicit. You're going along with that, whichever direction the opinion is going with anyway. So, But that's just me. That's my personality. Well, that's great. I mean, no no vote is a vote when you you decide not to cast a vote. And uh, it's, uh, I get that. So, you know, I studied women's studies at university. And uh, so I, I always used to like, or I still do, want to pick up on things like feminine narrative uh, or what we might call uh, a woman's style of management. At, at INSEAD, my business school, I just went to my 25th reunion and they spent an entire day on Friday, um, the Friday celebrating INSEAD, women at INSEAD for 50 years. And 
and and the whole topic of women in business, women in diversity, and other topics. And I just wanted to circle back on a on a common thread, but completely the opposite to you. When I arrived in America from England, I, I used to play left wing and field hockey, which is a sport practiced basically only by women in America. Whereas in Europe, of course, and around the world, Australia included, um, it's a it's a co-ed. I mean, it's a co-ed. It's both practiced by men and women. Anyway, when yeah. I got to university in the states, I said, "Oh, I'd love to play some field hockey." What? You know, yeah. yeah, I would like to. And so the women, conversely, were very open about having me practice with them. They didn't let me play, but I practiced with them. Which leads me to this thought about when you, Shannon Miller's comment about just give them time and attention, focus on the people, not on the tasks. It, it, it's just a lot of sense. But I have to, my, my filter says that seems like a, a much more feminine and much better approach to management than the typical sort of rational engineer uh, it's not that all men are, are, are the opposite, but it just seems like a more feminine way, uh, and I don't know, female way, you know, like a, to use the right word, to go about managing people. I don't know if I'd cast it in those terms. Um, to give you a little bit of background on Shannon Miller, she was working um, for the police force before she switched over and became a full-time coach, and she's also uh, opened the gate. So... I think her comments reflect the struggles and some of the challenges that she would have definitely come up against going through the, the police force and then sports and, and all of these kinds of things. So I think her wisdom is coming from that life experience. So I wouldn't necessarily catch it in a feminine way or that mm. kind of thing, but she's a very effective leader. She was a head coach after the Olympics of UMD, University of Minnesota Duluth, uh, the, the women's team there. And I believe they won the national championship seven or eight times, which means a trip to the White House and meeting the president. And no other women's hockey coach, male or female, has ever come close to that. So um, I just think that she individually as a leader has something very special about her. And of course, we're shaped by the life experiences that we have. That's brilliant. Very inspiring. So um, let's talk a little bit about uh, media, which uh, is the sort of how we, you and I got together. And um, I, I wanted to sort of start off with a fairly broad, uh, open topic, and it just obviously from your own filter, the media has gone through some rock and roll periods, and it seems to be going through rock and roll in different ways around the world. But uh, would, how would you describe the major strategic challenges that company, media companies are facing today? And is it as different per country, or are there some general national, you know, international trends that you see from your perspective? I think it comes down to some fundamental things, actually, which are uh, mindset and leadership. So the industry is changing. Industry has been changing for a long time. It went from newspapers to radio to TV to online and now, I guess, becoming hyper-digital or hyper-mobile where you see the specialization in places. And I think that working with a number of organizations both as my day job but also doing a lot of training and consulting around the world I really do think it's kind of the attitude or approach and the number one thing is you've got to have good leadership you have to have good leadership if you have a team of amazing people but a very bad or weak leader you're never going to be able to get that team to shine whereas conversely if you have let's say an average team but an amazing leader you can guide that team and do great things with them. And 
you always see these kinds of points of resistance when leadership doesn't buy in or uh, they're resistant or they have techno fear or they're not willing to challenge their own assumption. I think these are the areas where problems occur. Uh, coming to mind right now, I did a training in Burma, Myanmar, a few years ago. And this is maybe a year or two after the liberalization of SIM cards, which used to be notoriously expensive. And have it's become much more liberal now, so everybody's got a cell phone. And there, Facebook is seen as the internet. But uh, anyways, I was doing a training there, showing people how to make um, short videos on mobile phones. And when you have a look at the people who we were training, they didn't really have that much in terms of material or maybe even opportunity in their lives compared to what we who are living in the West are used to. But whenever we gave them a challenge or asked them to do something, the enthusiasm and kind of the determination to overcome any kind of obstacle to get it done was so, so inspiring. And then I want to contrast it with the week after that, I came back to London and I was doing a training in London with people who were either from Europe or who had been educated in Europe. And there, it was exactly the same training and there was no shortage of excuses that I was given as to why what I was asking them was impossible. So I think it's a combination of kind of, um, in that example, the mindset and the hunger. And I think this is true actually of all of the trainings that I've done in Asia, especially in developing areas where just people hustle more, they want more, they want to achieve more. And unfortunately, a certain level of complacency in the West. And again, that ties in very nicely with the leadership because if you do have people who are inspiring you or giving you the room to experiment, a lot of people talk about, oh, you know, we want to fail, but we want to fail fast. But actually, when it comes down to the crunch, they're very risk averse and you'll be punished for if you take risks and you fail. So, I mean, all of that is important, the culture that you set up. Um, so that doesn't answer the question in terms of what are the big digital challenges I see. I think it's really about these basic foundational things about culture, about leadership, about how, how do you lead an organization? How do you lead a team? What kind of environment are you creating for people to be their best? Or are, are you just treating them as cogs in a wheel? That's fascinating. When I was at INSEAD, I listened to a professor give a speech for all the alumni, you know, the returning old forts. And John uh, Piero Petrilieri, he's called. And he said that there's $150 billion spent per year on corporate leadership training programs. And yet, 86% of top executives surveyed in a very large amount of 500, Fortune 500 companies say that they, 86% say that they are not the appropriate leaders for tomorrow or that they have the appropriate leadership already uh, on board. So, so there's a, a massive disconnect, a lot of spending on training, just like you were saying. And the, elite, the conclusion I have sort of mixing that with what you just said is that, and I do a lot of trainings as well, is that if the boss who is prescribing the, your training is brought Esra in, or mentor in, um, isn't fully subscribed, hopefully even participatory in the in the training, then the chances of it, it transforming people's uh, lives and, and performance is reduced. Right, Absol absolutely. And I think we can do trainings until the cows come home. 
but there's one thing that's missing there, which is accountability. So I just came across a stat of one of the big tech companies saying that they've tried, they've trained 95,000 people on certain newsroom tools. And I think, well, that's a nice aggregate number, but was there any follow-up done to see, okay, one week after, two weeks after, two months after, one year after, are these people still using these tools? What's the uptake? Or is it just about saying, oh, look, we hit we hit these numbers and we hit these targets? Now, to the point about leaders, I just want to name check somebody here. Um, Inga Thordar, who is the executive director, I think, at CNN International. She's somebody who really stands out for me because uh, she's not just thinking of herself. She's thinking of succession. And I have seen very, very few leaders do that. So when you raise the point about leaders saying we're not the right person for this job, yeah, they can say that. But then at the end of the day, they all enjoy their nice benefits package and their nice salaries. And you're not going to see too many people reluctant to give that up or step to the side to make way for the people who are coming along. And that's normal. That's just life. But I I point out Inky because she's been thinking about this for a long time, ever since she joined CNN, she's also ex-BBC, about making sure that she's creating a path for the people who are coming after her, and she's actively doing that as well. And you don't see that a lot. And I I think of the notion of... Uh, of delegation and uh, this notion of needing to control. So on the one hand, there's I, I want to control everything, and I want to be I want to be the guy who get, or the woman who gives all the vision, and you know makes all the decisions, doesn't want to let go of any control. And the other one is the total lack of control, which is when you give it up and the other person takes it over. And if you can create a team of people who are better than you, what better example? And a little bit along the lines of what you were saying at the beginning, which is that you're so happy about how the progression of all the folks that you were working with at the BBC have moved on. Yeah, exactly. Um, I There's another quote that I like, which is delegation is the key to success. I think if you try to do everything by yourself, you are going to fail. And I also think that people who try to take all the credit for themselves um, are, do come across as quite arrogant. And I think um, people can see those people for what they are. But again, we have to be careful because a lot of people say, yeah, I'm going to hire people who are smarter than me. But when it comes down to the crunch, no, they don't do that. They want to have control. They want to have all the plaudits sung about them. So, you know, we we talk about training, but it really does require a level of self-awareness, of keeping your ego in check. And that's not something that you get sitting through a 60-minute session. This is something that you work on over years and years and years and years. But again, it comes down to your leadership. I think it comes down to... Um, your human resources or your your people's office who are invested in the culture. And I think that's why you see, for example, so many great things being said about Google because they invest in that culture. Another one that's closer to news is a European journalism center. They really focus on the culture and the environment that they create for everybody to thrive. And they have a leader who is not obsessed about doing everything or taking credit for themselves, number one, because it's impossible, but also because, two, they know that their success comes off the back of other people's success. So if other people shine, they will also shine as well. When looking at the work that you've been doing across these different media, naturally it's not always been the same remit, but media companies have had to go through this massive shift, uh, tremor, earthquake of moving into digital. How do you 
describe what makes for success within the organization of moving along? I mean, leadership is one thing, but you know, as 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 it pertains to the group you're working with, you've got to move them from point A to point B. What what makes for that to happen? Is are there any sort of magic markers to make that that come alive? Well, I can tell you what I've learned because I've worked in a few organizations now that are, are quite big in the sense that they have a lot of different language services or a lot of different um, programs like sports or culture or, or whatnot. And uh, you, you can't change everything and you can't do everything at the same time. So what I've learned is I don't try to convince everyone every more, anymore. I look for the people who are willing to come on this journey with me. So the people who are already open-minded to it or are already doing some kind of things and I can just with the little tweaks, really, really help them shine. So that's kind of my, that my first target group. The second group of people that I'm looking at are the people on the fence because I know that I can convince them with data and demystify the process with them. The people who I have stopped spending time on are the people who don't believe in whatever you're trying to do. And I've used this example in a few places I've spoken, which is, I remember sitting down about two years ago with one editor for 90 minutes, nine zero, 90 minutes, mm. and using analytics to explain why their videos were not performing because what they were doing was essentially spamming the audience, sending out between 10 to, 10, 10 to 20 videos every day, and the videos had a really low view count. And I was trying to say, you know, this isn't working. You dramatically need to cut down and define what your proposition is so your audience knows what you're about. And the response this person gave me was as follows. Well, the reason why our videos aren't doing so well is because our audience has, hasn't discovered them yet. But they will in a year or two's time because that's how the internet works. And <laughs> I just felt the blood rushing up into my right, head. I right, couldn't right. believe that I had heard this. And that was the moment that I decided... I'm not going to spend any more time convincing, trying to convince people who don't want to be convinced because what ends up happening are those first two groups that I talked about, they eventually will very quickly see the benefits of whatever change or improvement that you're trying to bring and then they become your in-house advocates and then those people who didn't believe in you are going to get called if you do have some kind of a, a accountability in your organization you'll see everybody else is improving but these guys aren't and so they will be that third wave that comes along at the end um, what I also try to do is I don't try to convince the bosses anymore so usually the bosses I don't think are the best people to be making the decisions they've got probably a million other things to be doing I try to find people kind of, let's say, digital editors or social media editors or people who are really interested in this stuff and who want to give it a go. And I give them all the time and support in the world to get it going. And then uh, we can use the numbers to convince the higher ups of what we're doing. Any other, and I'm just trying to think if I have any other Pearls. tricks or tips that I can tell you about. Um, well, it, just, just basic things like, as I said before, just time and attention. If you're going to take the time to introduce somebody to a new product or new tool, hold their hand through the process. Don't just show it off to them for two weeks and then leave them alone. I'd say in, invest of yourself and show them that you care. And the, the best things that I've seen turn around are those teams where you build a very good working relationship and you end up shining together. 
So if I had to uh, interpret, I, it sounds like you're a fan, or at least you believe in bottom-up as opposed to top-down. It depends. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've tried the other approach as well. I've tried top-down as well. And the other thing that I didn't mention is um, know when to break the rules. Mm-hmm. Um, I do, I guess, have a little bit of a reputation of being somebody who's disruptive, not in any negative sense at all, but... Um, I remember one project that I did in the last kind of year or two, uh, I pitched it to somebody quite high up and they said, right, well, this person's going to look after it. And that person had a lot more seniority than me. But I knew that if that person took it, it wasn't going to work. Mm-hmm. Um, so I basically just ignored that advice and went off and did my own thing. And, and it, it brought us the results that we needed. Um, so it, again, it's always a risk. <laughs> But you, you do have to know uh, when to break the rules. But of course, you can only do that kind of thing if, you, if you've got somebody who has your back. You need to, if you're going to do things like that, you've got to have somebody in the organization who's invested in you, who is going to kind of clear the minds and the obstacles in front of you and, and do the politics so that you can just get on with and do your job. Otherwise, as you mentioned the word fringe, you'll end up even more on the fringe. Yeah, I, I wanted to um, circle back on, on one area, this notion of using data. So there's this sort of concept, of course, of big data, lots of data helps uh, make arguments for the more rational folks. At the same time, when we're talking about accountability, uh, you need to look at results. And, and in the digital world, there is a, uh, a hyper tendency to look at the vanity metrics of shares and likes as opposed to the transformation and, and maybe more profound results. So how do you go about, I mean, not getting caught up or, or at least avoiding um, your teams or the people you're working with getting excited about, hey, look, my article got a thousand likes and that's the big deal. So you always have to start off with the end in mind define what it is that you're trying to achieve. Is your organization concerned about reach? Is it concerned about making money? Is it concerned about having really, really high engagement? So I've always worked for public sector broadcasters, so there's never been really an incentive for uh, financial return or revenue, even though there are certain platforms that do give you the opportunity to do that. And my argument would be then use that revenue that you're bringing in to invest back into your projects. That's to one side. But I'd start off with the end in mind. So these could be very, very specific things of, let's say that you are launching a video product on Facebook and you notice that your viewers are 55 and above and they're male, but that's not your target demographic. Let's say you're trying to bring in a target demographic of 18 to 35 females from Africa. Uh, If you have that kind of goal in mind, it's very easy to then work backwards to figure out, okay, where is your audience leaving? Why are they leaving? Or what type of content is resonating with them? And you can get really specific to what kind of days of week and what times of day is is this working. Now, I have spoken and written about vanity metrics before. And into that category, I put things like reach, clicks, views, likes, and the reason for that is is because it doesn't mean anything. So let's just let's just speculate for a moment. So it's World Cup time in Russia. There's a big stadium in St. Petersburg. And uh, let's say that you and I are there. So you and I, we walk in, let's say we walk into the stadium as spectators. And let's say that the stadium capacity is 40,000 people. 
So you and I could say, we've reached 40,000 people, okay? Or we've viewed 40,000 people. 40,000 people have viewed us. So that's what that means. But let's say that you and I don't know each other, and, and but we're seated next to each other in that stadium. You and I are going to maybe chat, have a conversation, might turn out that we're both fans of Brazil, and we're watching Brazil, and then they win, and the next game we come and we see each other again. That's what I call engagement, because... We've met, we've had this connection, we build a relationship, and we're more likely to interact with each other next time. And then I might go away and say to my friends, oh yeah, I met this fellow Minter, and he lives in Paris, and he's a big friend of Brazil. And that's really, that's really engagement. And that's the type of thing that you're looking at. Everything else is peripheral. Everything else is speculative. Now, that's not to say that there's not a place for it. I think things like views and reach and clicks are indicative but you have to know when to use them. And then you have to know when you switch to another set of metrics. If you're really serious about building a better editorial and content strategy and also working on your weak points, but doing the latter takes a lot more time and effort. And this could be one reason why that people don't want to do it. There's a lot of, I guess, techno and digital fear in newsrooms. So there was an interview I did for Jen before the summit where it was referenced that Something like only 25% of newsrooms use analytics in their decision-making. I think that's shocking, but I also think it reflects that either analytics are not seen as important or there's a lot of fear about them, and that just comes from a lack of understanding. So what I try to do is demystify the process and, and show people what this is about, why it matters, and if somebody like me who strategically failed maths in high school can turn around and deal with numbers and statistics every day, then you can too. Where I come up against a little bit of difficulty, uh, for example, is an organization that says, okay, our objective is we want to reach X amount of people and all of their efforts are targeted in that direction. It's very hard to convince an organization, especially if they've been entrenched in that kind of thing, that they might be wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Nobody wants to hear that. Um, but what I think is going to happen are people are going to get very hip to this in a matter of years. And once that happens, especially if you're publicly funded, I do think that people are going to call you to task and say, look, you know, you've been giving us all of these numbers and they're massively inflated. We want to see these other numbers. And then that could become a moment of panic. But I think if you concentrate on things like building a relationship with your audience, building loyalty, measuring that through things like engagement, you will not only see your numbers rise, but you will see all of those other numbers go up. And it's not true the other way around. Well, there are a lot of wonderful pearls in what you're providing for us, Esra. I, I, um, I mean, for everybody, whether it's in media or outside, and I think there's a lot to reflect on. And I sort of had this idea that maybe you're the, the truth-sayer, the one who brings <laughs> in truth, uh, even in the face of it not being a welcome surprise. Well, thank you very much for that. It's very kind. We all do our best. That is beautiful. So, Esra Doramaj, how can, of course, that's how I, I finally learned how to pronounce, uh, but how can people follow you or what you're up to, uh, track you down or get in touch with you if they want to use your services? Um, so, I'm on I'm on Twitter, Esra D, E-S-R-A-D. Uh, I'm also very easy to find on LinkedIn. Um, my kind of social media proliferation stopped 
on Instagram, so I'm active, but not as not as active as maybe I should be. But um, Twitter, Instagram, or Twitter and LinkedIn, sorry, are probably best. Beautiful. Chuk merci, um, <laughs> Esra. Thanks for coming on the show and sharing all your wonderful thoughts there. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on minterdial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please like the handy Facebook button. Or better yet, head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. But first, relax to Joss Sachs's Finger Paint. Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way to rid me of the gray. You mentioned in your lack of self-security Oh, I wouldn't care about the art form As long as you would feel warm Wrapped in canvas, hold me tightly Slowly we would paint a lover's portrait With all your favorite shades
Hi, my name is Sarah, and I want to tell you about my podcast called Can I Offer You Some Feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding or seeking. Feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. I'll also be sharing business bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com.